What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and more. Join us. Aresha Martinez Carroso from the University of Chicago. Mike Esposito from Washington University in St. Louis. Daryl Hudson, also from Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, a podcast from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science. We took a break to recalibrate a little bit and get back to our roots. So today we have an episode that focuses on the importance of interdisciplinary work and features a scholar who embodies that very approach in his illustrious career. Um, so today we're very fortunate to be chatting with Dr. Sandra Galea who's a physician, epidemiologist, author of many, many different books and articles. He's currently the Robert A. Knox Professor at Boston University School of Public Health. And in 2015, he became the youngest public health dean in the country, assuming the leadership role of Boston University School of Public Health. As I mentioned before, Dr. Guaya is prolific, having published over 950 papers, which is absolutely hard to believe. That sounds like a library to me. Um, 70 book chapters and 19 books. In addition to that, he served as the past chair of the Association of Schools and Programs of Public Health and past president of the Society for Epidemiologic Research and of the Interdisciplinary Association for Population Health Science. So we're happy to welcome you back to IAPHS. Um, these are just a few of your accolades and we don't want to spend the entire episode reading your CV, but just to give people a sense of of the magnitude of, of the type of scholar you are. And again, appreciate you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. It's really a privilege to be here with you all. Can I so ask, start us off really fast? Cause like, like after that mic drop moment, <laughs> does, it, does it feel like you have 950 papers and have been the president of all these, like, you know, looking back, do you feel like this big deal in public health? Um, I'm just curious, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I don't feel like, uh, <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's a great way of putting it. Um, uh, I don't think I've ever reflected that way. I, um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I don't know how I feel. I mean, I feel a bit old, perhaps. Um, uh, you know, I, um, you know, I entered, I had a very untraditional um, path to the academic world. You know, I, I often feel when I talk to junior scholars, you're also much better prepared and much more focused than I was. You know, I was, uh, you know, I was an immigrant who really was uh, only knew medicine. So I did medicine, practice medicine. And then I really accidentally drifted to doing a master's and then a doctorate. So I've always felt a bit like a, an accidental scholar. Um, uh, and um, even just saying the word scholar just gives me a little bit of like a free son of uh, anxiety. Um, uh, so, so, I, so I don't know how to feel about it other than uh, I've uh, tried very hard to make a contribution in whatever space I've occupied and hope that some of it has actually been useful. And, uh, you know, everything else is really sort of abstraction and numbers. To, to sort of, uh, but uh, at, on my day-to-day, -day, I'm just, I'm trying to, trying to do what I think is right by my responsibility. 
Fair enough. Not only in the brilliant, but also humble. If I had 900 publications, I'm dedicating a room to all of them. Better than me. I hadn't thought of dedicating a room. <laughs> Michael, now that you've said that, I'm like, I'm gonna there you go. <laughs> I see things differently now. There you go. <laughs> That's amazing. Cool. Yeah, um, so one thing that is is great about your career, as you mentioned, you're kind of this embodiment of interdisciplinary scholarship, whether you, you know, intentionally went the scholarship path or not, um, it's kind of who you've turned into coming from your origin in medicine and um, in this broader field of public health and epidemiology. Um, so I'm kind of curious about um, how you define interdisciplinary work. Um, and why do you think interdisciplinary scholarship is so important? Yeah, so, you know, I, it's a really interesting question because at some level, I think, you know, disciplinary bounds are unnecessary constraints. Like in, in, in some, some level, I, I feel like we should be, you know, scholarship should be driven by the question. And I think one should apply whatever methods that are rigorous and sufficient to and can stand up to the question. It doesn't really matter where the methods come from. It doesn't really matter what the roots of those methods are, which then you know, creates a bit of a, I suppose the correct term would be a transdisciplinary approach, which is that one mm -hmm. that disciplines. So I think at a simple level, I can say to you, I, I, I'm sort of a bit impatient with disciplines. Now, at a more pragmatic level, I, I think that's an incomplete answer because I have come to appreciate the fact that disciplines are useful. They're socializing, you know, they help us, they help us train one another. They help us create a, a glide path for junior scholars to become senior scholars. They create a, a body of knowledge that is helpful to be passed on from one generation to the next. So I, I, I suppose my feeling about disciplines is, as is my feeling about many things, as you'll see as we go on the conversation, it's, it's not one or the other. I do think that there, the disciplines have a function but I think they can also be constraining. And I think our job is to figure out how to loosen disciplinary constraints while preserving the benefit that disciplines may have in creating opportunities for growth and excellence within them. Yeah, I never really thought about that before. Like sometimes, you know, I think all of us here, we're all very much just like interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary. But in conversations kind of like with folks not involved in the IAPHS, there's a lot more kind of pushback and saying like, no, there's like some value to kind of disciplines, but they've never followed up on what that is. It's always just like there's value in disciplines and then like long stairs, like <laughs> to like go further with that conversation. So viewing it like as that is really, you know, it's really, really helpful to think about. Do you think that's like kind of a, just a byproduct of like the structure of academia and like there's like a version of academia out there where we could go back to the roots, reseed everything, and then just like start from this interdisciplinary thing, uh, kind of like perspective um, and the kind of net, the, the need for these um, uh, disciplinary boundaries is just a function of like how rewards right. rolled out or like do you really think that like it's like no matter what version of academia we have like there's some value in that disciplinary boundaries i th i think it's helpful to not think about academia and think about other okay. industries let's say let's say you're uh, you're working for a large department store and uh, suppose for a second that there was no marketing department there's no mm. sales department there's no accounting department and you just hire people 
in a non-specific way and you just say, well, let's all figure out how to make this department store work. I, I bet that would result in a bunch of chaos. And I actually sure. bet <laughs> that would result in, you know, the, the, the accountants not learning the accounting skill, the sales thing mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. good as they can be. So I, 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 you know, I, and I think we all recognize that actually to run an excellent department store, you want people to be able to be, some people to remain within their discipline and some people to sort of acquire cross-functionality. And, and I think academic world's not that different. I think you need people who are well-versed in epidemiologic methods and biostatistical methods and the theories and thoughts of a community um, a community health science perspective. And, um, and I think some people will remain throughout their career much more comfortable sort of operating within their discipline. And I think others are able to and comfortable with speaking across disciplines and engaging cross-disciplinary questions. So I suppose I'm getting at, I think it's okay. I think it's okay to have um, disciplinary homes, to have narrow disciplinary foci, and also to have interdisciplinary perspectives and to have some people sort of operate at transdisciplinary level. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, Mike is the only one of us who comes from a true canon, you yeah. know, like you are the sociologist <laughs> and, you know, the rest of us uh, in public health, there isn't sort of the same. So it is easy to sort of flow and move around. Um, uh, and I think for us, it's easy to say like, oh, there should be no disciplines because therefore, like we all sort of, we're pulling from here, we're pulling from there, but um there certainly is a tradition in some of the fields. I'm just curious, um, is there now going back, is if you could go back and get another PhD, now working with so many colleagues and across fields, is there one that you would go back to? Well, it's, it's an interesting question um, um, because the truth is that when I first applied for a master's, which was my first step in graduate school, I applied and got into a health policy master's. And mm. uh, that was my... Um, because I've always been interested, when I started thinking about going out of medicine and going to graduate school, what I really was interested in was this broader scale, larger structural forces that shape health. And I thought health policy was the way to do it. So actually I applied to, got into health policy. And then I had a bit of a crisis of confidence because I was worried that I wouldn't get enough of a methodological grounding in health policy. If I did that, that doesn't mean that if one is a health policy, they wouldn't, but in, in, given that configuration as well as words. So actually I went back to the university and said, that's great, you've accepted me, and uh, but now actually I wanna, I wanna do my degree in epidemiology instead. Of course, as a student or as an applicant, I didn't realize what now is very clear to me as a dean, that when you do that, you create all sorts of chaos because actually they're totally different silo <laughs> students. So you know, for me, from the outside, I thought it was just the same school. I didn't realize there was a completely different group of people who evaluate and who had to transfer. But luckily, they somehow transferred me and they somehow admitted me to epidemiology. So I did epidemiology as a discipline. But I mean, I think if one looks at my work, I think it probably a fair assessment would be that I've been much more in the, let's say, the sort of sociomedical science, health policy, community health science type areas of work, despite the fact that my disciplinary home is epidemiology. Um, and, and that's where I guess my interdisciplinarity has come in. But I have no, I have no regrets about doing my training in epidemiology in both my doctorate and my master's, because um, for me, it was very important to have that rigorous methodological grounding. You have to remember, I came to this from a very, from a clinical background. So I knew nothing before I went to graduate school. So for me, it was very important I actually got a uh, had an anchor 
around which I could build a career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, and, and you mentioned this a little bit, um, and thinking about, you know, building your your body of work and, and becoming this this giant that you now are, um, just thinking practically for people who are at different stages of their career, I'm wondering how you um, work on interdisciplinary teams. I, I imagine that that looks a lot different for you now as a dean, managing, like you said, those different departments those different silos um, for one school, or perhaps just working on a specific paper or a grant. Um, any advice that you might share with like how you, you construct or or work on an interdisciplinary team? Yeah, the, you know, I think when you have a true interdisciplinary team, um, um, you realize very quickly that people in different disciplines speak different languages. And, uh, and there are, I mean, a very simple level, for example, because a lot of my work has been, I characterize my work as having been at the intersection of sort of social epidemiology and psychiatric epidemiology. Mm -hmm. And um, so as a result, I've had a lot of psychologists and sociologists on teams that I've worked in. For example, simple things like um, effect measure modification in epidemiology is called something totally different in psychology, which is mm -hmm. a source of no endless confusion. Um, so there actually are very real language differences which require patience and uh, adaptability to um, understand one another. Number one, number two, there are very different disciplinary norms. That there are ways in which to, to, you know epidemiologists, you know, get very very unhappy when you do things use things like p-values. Psychologists use p-values all the time. Not just use p-values; they use one asterisk, two asterisks, three asterisks. <laughs> and uh, epidemiologists are just like you know throw up their hands in despair. Um, um, so I think you have to be. Perhaps you have to be intellectually flexible um, uh, to be able to work with different teams and be willing to, to tolerate each other's disciplinary perspectives. And, and you have to find a place where you're comfortable, where finding a middle ground is not compromising some deeply important core belief you have about the approach, but actually it really is a way of bridging disciplinary gaps and that's going to advance the scholarship. But it requires, it's, it is more work. Like it is more work. You know, if, you, if, you follow, if you stick with my language metaphor, it's easier to just work only in English. It's more work than be working in uh, English, Italian, and Mandarin at the same time. It actually is more work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's a story of, of at least in, in my career. I'm, I'm glad to hear there's another person who describe themselves <laughs> at the intersection of something. Because I would say this, the intersection, they're saying for me, social and in psychiatric epidemiology um and it is it is more difficult so more time consuming when you're trying to to wrestle with different methods and theories and and just different language like you said is, is so yeah, and, hard and look, there, there are also many advantages to it I and mean, obviously that's why one does it i mean there is the advantage of the bringing the and addressing what i think are the most interesting questions which i think tend to exist at the interstices of disciplines um, um, but also it gives you, you know, there's this term which a colleague had introduced me to, which is uh, intellectual arbitrage, which is where you take methods from one particular area mm -hmm. and adopt mm -hmm. them to another area. Mm -hmm. And that is actually quite a powerful tool because it allows, it, it, it allows you to bring something new to a particular area and people open their eyes to it and people generally are receptive to that, although, of course, also suitably skeptical. So I think it makes for a, perhaps a less smooth path than if one is sort of on one discipline and just moving forward. 
but it makes for a potentially more interesting path and one with more opportunities for generative novel work. Um, thinking about that sort of coming out of left field, can you think about a time or a project when you did work on a team with you know, a bunch of different people with different hats and perhaps the project would have turned out completely different if you know you didn't have this sort of magic mix of those people um, and scholars working together. Yeah, I mean, we did, um, there was a period in my life where um, I was um, involved in a, in a team and I'm still sort of perfectly involved in this, but much less now, where we were really combining population health science approaches with epigenetic approaches. And uh, that we were looking at, you know, been interested a long time in trauma, mental health, and we're looking at the and the epigenetic mechanisms that explain how uh, an exogenous traumatic experience becomes manifests as um, a uh, particular constellation of mental health symptoms, and and that's required, you know, with a team of sort of mouse biologists as well as human um, uh, epigenetics um, scholars as well as population health scientists with a dose of uh, people who do spatial modeling, and you know, there was a. It was some of the most, I think, interesting work that I've done in my career, and it was uh, it was messy and uh, and challenging. And you know, one of the things that um, and look, interdisciplinary work like this gets difficult. For example, in grant writing, um, uh, what a colleague once advised me said, he shouldn't write grants like that. This is advice mm -hmm. I didn't listen to, because he said, what happens is you have parts of a grant from discipline A, part of a grant from discipline B, which means people in both disciplines criticize you harshly. So you have twice the criticism, mm -hmm. um, which is sort of true, actually. Um, uh, so you sort of have to overcome twice the hurdle. Um, similarly, in papers, you have people who now, right. you know, sort of, and you know, at, some of these interdisciplinary challenges extend also, for example, to career promotion. Like, you know, I often have uh, scholars in our school who want joint appointments in departments, which we're always happy to do as long as the scholar recognizes that now you have to satisfy two different departments that you've met there for success. So there are, so, so the rewards have to be right for you to go through that hassle because it is actually harder, as I said earlier. Obviously, as I've, and the way I've operated and the way I've been speaking, I think the rewards are worth it, but one should be aware that uh, it uh, you're creating challenges for yourself. I'm wondering what you think about, because it's a really interesting aspect in this big kind of transdisciplinary project that everybody's really rah-rah about, but like, except for, in, I don't know, my read of the field, we don't actually see it play out kind of like um, uh, with all the purchase that I think that uh, I think it has. And part of it is, like you said, it's there's a lot of kind of structural issues in academia that kind of like all the incentive structure is like pointed in the opposite kind of direction, right? So when I think about when I'm like, I'm going to do interdisciplinary work, I'm going to work with engineers, I'm going to work with people, that's one path I could go down and I see all these issues. It's like, well, if I publish in an engineering journal, well, yeah. I'm never going to get rewarded for that versus kind of like this other version of interdisciplinary uh, kind of like work, which is valuable, but much weaker. I like turn to someone like Daryl and say, hey, Daryl, you're technically in a different discipline than me. We Do we use the same methods? Do we use the same thoughts? Do we work from the same theories? Totally, but it's still technically interdisciplinary. And the work, the reward structure is kind of like much kind of like, um, you know, more clearly defined there. So I'm wondering how we can kind of like, 
you know, what we would need to kind of change in building these interdisciplinary teams on the structural side um, to uh, like in a concrete way to, you know, get more folks to take do some of that risky kind of novel work. Yeah, especially speaking as a dean, right, where you have to sort of think about yeah. all the so, moving parts. So let me let me let me comment. Let me take that question in two ways. Let me start sort of at the uh, sort of a, at the sort of junior scholar advice level now. Yeah. Um, you know, I've always felt, and I've given this advice many many times for what it's worth, that um, you need to have two streams of work in uh, as a, as, a, as a junior academic. Number one is you need to do the stuff that is sort of um, going to get easily funded, easily published to be able to move forward. And then you should also have the stream of stuff that's harder, harder to do, more complicated, is going to have lower yield and is going to be slower to produce. Now, why do you need both? You need both. You need the first one because you want to advance and because you're making a contribution in the mainstream and, and it's less risky. You need the second one because you want your soul to thrive and that there are some things that you're passionate about. And um, I don't think you probably want to invest all your energy only in the high risk stuff. No, some people will. I, I would argue that the very few people actually will, will do that because it's not necessarily the wisest approach. Now, so that's at the individual level. Now at the structural level, I actually think the same thing about schools and structures. I think, um, the, a, I think it is reasonable and appropriate to have a particular expectation set. I think this is a, an industry like all others. I think sometimes you know we, we don't think of it that way in academia, but why not? It should be. There should be expectations. There should be norms of what we expect in terms of people achieve and what people do with their time that they're being paid for. But I also think that a, a generative, welcoming, inclusive workplace like an academic environment should also have the space for the creative narrative for people who actually are doing the high-risk work, for people who say, I may have published fewer papers in this, but here is why it is important for the field. And, you know, if I were to ground it in an example of my own work, for example, you know, I became interested about 15, a bit longer now, years ago, in complex systems and in systems approaches to population health questions, largely because it was consistent with my, I think, intellectual architecture that isolating simple causes, which is the epidemiologic paradigm, is insufficient to complex causes and particularly to things like macrosocial determinants. This was just before the time when I published my macrosocial determinants book. Now, system science at the time was pretty non-existent in population health science. And I got involved in a group that was doing some of this work, but I realized very quickly that it was going to be very low yield. So I did that, but it was in parallel to my other work, which was using more traditional methods and asking more traditional questions. And if you look at my productivity, you'll see that the number of system science papers are actually quite few um, as a proportion of my total number of papers. But I love those papers. And it's something which I think I enjoy doing. And I think also it was a, I'd like to think it was important in the field at the moment in time when I did it, that it nudged ideas forward. But had I done just that, I wouldn't have been promoted. Had I done just that, I actually shouldn't have been promoted. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like, I think that's very consistent with what I've heard in terms of mentorship as well, in terms of like, I remember Lynn Sam used to tell us when I was a postdoc at UCSF, he would say, you gotta have your fruits and vegetables work. And then you gotta have this stuff, you know, because that, that pays the bills. And then yep. you have the stuff that you really, like you said, that's your soul work. 
Um, so it's it's interesting to hear the the parallels and um and the consistency of, of that mentorship. And I'd imagine for you is that I can see why you're a dean because you're thinking about just that how to propel you know innovative work and also have like this high quality work that that does move people in a different way. So that's a really interesting way to, it's, to frame it's, things. There are less nice to hear about Len. I hadn't heard that actually before. You know, if you think about it, for example, companies like Google, right? This is well known in, in popular culture, right? They, companies like that that try to encourage creativity and generative work, right? They say you can do four days a week on what your main project is, and one day a week you have to do something different. And to me, it seems to me reasonable. It's a reasonable approach by any industry to expect there are certain things which are the way we do things under certain productivity we expect, but don't sacrifice all your creativity. Like, let's make sure that you also have space to be creative, to take risks, to do stuff that you're actually, you care about. And that's the balance. Look, the beauty of the academic world is that you're not regimented the way you are, let's say, working for Google with four day, one day, that you can do any combination you want. The downside of that, of course, you can get lost in it and you have to have the discipline to impose it on yourself. That's really good advice. I sort of wish I had heard that a couple of years ago. <laughs> you know, because I think as a junior scholar, we're always, I don't know, Mike, maybe you feel this way, Daryl, you can reflect it. Like, uh, you're always like trying to find the shiny, hot and new and trying to push the envelope on, in the field. And that can sometimes, and then if, if we want to sort of pull in from from inspiration from multiple fields, it, it, it does feel very risky to do that. Um, and, you know, to try to get published, try to get funding. Um, so yeah, uh, everyone listening, make sure you're eating your vegetables uh, <laughs> and planning them, right? In addition right. to like everything else. Yeah, it's a stoop. Yeah, it's, it's really difficult to, to keep all <laughs> the proverbial balls in the air, but yeah. it's, it's Sandra mentioned having the discipline. And I think that is the beauty of being the industry of academia is that you have that, that space and that autonomy to figure out how it works best for you. Look, there, there is, a, I mean, I'm not aware of, um, look, I feel immensely fortunate to have spent the past now almost 25 years in the academic world where um, you have the, um, the flexibility, the intellectual flexibility, and also the practical flexibility. The truth is the academic job doesn't ask of you that much time where you actually physically have to be do that particular thing. You can do it all when you want, how you want. It is an enormous privilege. It's also, you can also get lost in it. Like it, it, it is, um, you know, the, um, I, I often tell junior, junior faculty, like when, you know, on your day one, the scariest thing is you open your computer, you have a blank piece of paper, and you have an empty calendar. And that is the most wonderful thing in the world. And there's a serious thing in the world. Um, and, yeah. and you know, this is where having mentorship comes in. And this is where having a community of scholars at different levels who you can draw on comes in, of course. Andrew, when you're sitting in and advising folks, like compared to kind of when it, you, you know, were first getting started and first kind of mentoring folks, do you feel like there has been kind of like a bigger shift towards kind of just like, like when scholars come in the door, like they're like, I'm ready to kind of like be a transdisciplinary scholar and kind of like work on the boundaries of things? Or does it still take a lot of time to kind of like convince people of the purchase of that and orient them to how to think about that? Um, yeah, what what's the state that like that now anymore? I, I, 
I think the world is better. I just, oh. <laughs> my general approach. This is my general approach to life. I do think the world. I think uh, there's much more acceptance of uh, of in, of inter and transdisciplinary approaches. I think there is a. We're now much better in the academic world. You know, my position as dean is. Uh, you know, I have to approve all promotions that go through the school, and I think we're much better at uh, at at uh, mentoring junior scholars to say. Tell the story, tell the story of who you are, what you've achieved, why you've achieved what you achieved, why you haven't achieved some things that you meant to achieve. And, you know, it used to be 20 years ago, I think a lot more rigid, a lot more sort of the expectation. There's a certain number that you have to hit and everything else. You know, look, the fundamentals that are, to use the term before, it's an industry where there's a certain expectation of productivity, there's a certain expectation that you're actually making a contribution. And frankly, we want that expectation. We shouldn't be wanting to just pay people to do not very much. We want people to produce, to generate, and to contribute to scholarship. But within that, I think, uh, Michael, I think there's enormous um, acceptance of the fact that scholarship is arrived at in different ways. I mean, give, I'll give one concrete example. You know, when I was, you know, growing up and being socialized in the field, there was enormous amount of sort of arguing about how, for example, the things like if you're engaging community and doing community-based work, it's going to take longer and you're going to have perhaps fewer papers. I don't think today anybody argues about it. I think anybody who's thoughtful understands that to be the case. And it's fine. It's actually fine. You simply, you're presenting your scholarship as such. And I have not, I mean, I've now been dean for eight and a half years. I have not seen any person, certainly within my environment, obviously I'm talking about my school, who's ever been held back because of that. Like it's, it's explained, it's understood. It's, it's not just understood by me, the dean. You know, in some respects, the dean is a very small part of these policies. You know, there's the committees and there's the external reviewers that there are many more people involved than, than is the dean. And those people understand it as well. The internal committees understand it, the departments understand it, the external reviewers understand it. So I do think that we've actually come far. I think it's a better time to do interdisciplinary work than it's ever been. Within public health, we should be careful. <laughs> public health, you know, I don't want to speak for all of the academic, academic world. I think there are you know different areas of the academic world that have their own particularities. Right. Yeah, we'll leave sociology aside for the moment. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you were labeled <laughs> so I'm sure you have those particular tales to tell. Right. Um, while we're on the advice train, I'm wondering if we can, um, you know, pick your your academic brain a little bit and ask. Uh, what are some of the areas or uh, studies that you want to see or papers that you hope are, get written soon in the areas of population health um, that you haven't seen before, but feel like people should be working on, you know, for the junior scholars who, who want a little inspiration? <laughs> um, well, it's a very long list, but um, <laughs> I do think that, you know, what excites me about looking ahead in population health scholarship is our is scholarship that intersects with the key shifts in the world today. And by mm -hmm. key shifts in the world today, I mean the greater recognition of, awareness of, and urgency to grapple with health gaps, to talk about changes in global environment, things like climate change, talk about population aging, talk about forces like migration, talk about the importance of infectious disease and emerging infectious disease, talk about the role that cities and growing urbanization plays mm -hmm. in health, talk about the greater awareness of the intersection of mental health and blurring the boundaries of mental health and physical health, all of that as sort of animating um, our questions. Then within that, I've always been drawn to questions of consequence that 
ask how large scale forces can be understood to shape the health of populations. And as a result, what we can do to inflect those large scale forces to create healthier populations. Offshoots of that become the um, health intersecting with sociological consequences, intersecting with the economic costs of a lot of these large scale forces with the trade-offs that we must make to optimize which forces to work on and which ones not to. I believe I've just outlined five, if 10 different careers right there. But right, yeah. <laughs> I think on. they're all <laughs> questions. I really do. And I actually, you know, I um, I read the literature avidly. I learn from literature all the time. Which means, um, you know, I've read all your papers and I've learned from all your papers. <laughs> Look forward to the next one. Well, that's good to hear. And uh, also very... Uh daunting because you never know who's reading your papers that's always yeah be. you know um, what Daryl you know one of the most amazing things about this job is uh, I think that we all have is this thing that you put things out and they become papers and they sit there and then you never know who reads them and uh, you know the um, I'll give you I'll give you a concrete example of uh, something which um, really sort of surprised me um, um, in um, you, you know, because I've done a fair bit of work on trauma and mental health consequences of trauma in uh, when there was the SARS epidemic, about almost 20 years ago now, a group, which I did not know, they reached out to me because they had read my papers on trauma and mental health. And they said, look, we're interested. Do you think that SARS and this infectious disease epidemic is going to affect population mental health? I, said, I think so. There's no literature on it. So I worked with them. We wrote a paper, one paper, did collected data, blah, blah, published. And it fell like a like like it sank like a stone. Like SARS came and went. Nobody talked about. It. Nobody ever cited the paper. And then there was a small global pandemic called COVID. Mm. And it turns out that paper was the only paper out there that had looked at population level mental health consequences after an infectious mm. disease outbreak. And all of a sudden, it became my second most cited paper out of nowhere. Mm. Wow. And that paper was like 15 years old. Oh, wow. wow. So, you know, in the number of times, I mean, it is such a great privilege. Every once in a while, I'll get an email from someone who I don't know. And they say, I read this paper that you wrote in 2008 and something to which I'm like, wow, that's really cool. It's, it's really cool. So, so you know, the I, I, I think what an amazing thing to be paid to put out papers in the world. And look, sometimes one can despair because you're like, <laughs> Did <laughs> another paper. No one said anything. You know, after a while, your mom, your mom stopped saying congratulations. Like, Are you reading this stuff? Like, uh, you know, I put another paper out there, and it's like silence. Like, hello, anybody? But I'm here to tell you that um, people do read them, and uh, and not not all your papers, unless all your papers are brilliant. Certainly, mine are not. But people read and people, it shapes how people think. And it's not just about citations. Citations are really nice, but it informs people's thinking. Yeah. yeah. Have you yeah, felt so that I... shift more since you've, you've written a couple of books for more lay audiences? Do you sort of feel that trickling out outside of our field, uh, out into the world? Yeah. You know, I'm not sure how to answer that. It's a good question. Um, you are, you're all asking great questions. The, um, you know, my, I, I see myself first, foremost, and last as an academic. And uh, like, a, you know, my audience really is other scholars. And, you know, that's why almost all my books have been academic books. I mean, I've done, I've done now two books intended for a lay audience. And uh, in part, I've seen that as a bit of a public responsibility, just given the seat that I occupy. Um, um, 
and, uh, and, and, and you know, it, it does, I see the trickling out into the broader world. Um, um, I've never seen it as my core, as the core of what I do. It's sort of something which I felt like has been in the past few years has emerged from what I do. I think the core of what I do um, uh, remains the work that I've done that sort of tries to shape how we think in the academic world. And uh, largely because I believe in our mission. I actually think the academic world plays a really important role in society. I think it plays a role in, uh, in generating ideas, rigorous ideas backed by data, informed by careful thinking. And, uh, and I sort of like doing that. Yeah, I agree. It's, um, it's always fun to, like you said, to hear about like, I'm always surprised when someone walks up to me and says, I read your paper. I'm like, wow, you really? That's like, that still takes me aback. Um, and I think it's really cool when when people in the public also find out about something you've done and and they have interest in it too. So that's always pretty cool. Yeah, and, um, and, you know, there's a lot more, by the way, translation of science now, right? Like yeah. institutions are getting better translating science. The media is, you know, things like the sort of the data journalism, right? Which... Mm -hmm. Remember, they didn't exist ten years ago. Yeah. Like, like, like. So, 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 there's a lot more opportunities actually for your scholarship to be picked up and to be seen, and uh, to inform other people's, you know, work. And um, that's great. That's actually terrific. It means that the work you do has a has a, you know, greater chance of intersecting with shifting thought. And that's great. That's what we want to do. Absolutely. And I think. One of the things that I'm curious about, so you've accomplished a lot. You mentioned, you know, writing all these different books and papers. Just from a practical standpoint, I'm curious about how you make it all work. So how do you, you know, maintain the record of productivity mm -hmm. and, and the impact and also, you know, be uh, a full, healthy human being and, and all the other things that you have to do is, is that full and healthy human being? Including spending time talking to us on podcasts, like, yeah. right? Work like yeah. that now. <laughs> um, Can you give us your life hacks? Yeah. Well, first of all, they all they keep saying things like you've accomplished a lot. You know, it's a funny thing to hear you say that. I'm like, oh, it doesn't feel that way from this end. But be that as it may, so thank you. <laughs> um, uh, look, I um, I, I I don't know the answer to the question, but but I'll I'll, I'll simplify it in in this way for me, the way I've simplified it in my own head. Um, um I suppose. I said to myself that uh, I really care about two things. One is I care about my family and spending time with my family, my kids, my spouse, et cetera. And I care about my work. I care, I feel a deep responsibility to do well by my work. And I've done those two things. So if you think of it that way, it's not that many things. I've only done two things. I haven't done three, I haven't done four, I've done two things. Mm. Um, um, and, you know, I say that, I don't mean to be banal by saying that, but actually I do mean it in that um, as a result, there are other things I haven't done. Like I have not, I have not taken on hobbies that take up an enormous amount of my time. Like, like, you know, all my, um, my time as my kids were growing up were the kids and their stuff. Now I'm actually at an interesting life transition as my kids are now, my son's in college, my daughter is about to leave the house. So it's uh, now I actually have a, a different I'm at a sort of different life point where I'm now rethinking some of that. But, you know, for 20 years, I um, did that and I did this. And um, that's very clarifying. And by the way, that's just a formula that worked for me. Everybody should find their own formula and find a formula that works for them. So that's sort of at a level of 
what I've done. Then in terms of the professional side of the house, um, um, you know, I, I, I use the term, I mean, I think it's about discipline and efficiency. And, uh, and that means knowing yourself, knowing what works for you, and, um, and as importantly, being surrounded by really good people with whom you can do good work. I mean, if you look at my publications, um, um, until I became dean, I never had a single, single authored paper. Hmm. Now, when I became dean, I had single author papers because people were asking me to do things sort of state of the field type stuff. Right. Everything I've done has always been with others um, because it's better that way. And I've had the good fortune of having, you know, colleagues who, you know, many of whom were students originally, who I've now worked with for almost 25 years. Um, so being with a group of good people who are good and who like each other elevates you. It elevates your work. Being efficient elevates you, allows you to do more. I mean, there's a lot of you know, people who are not careful about discipline and efficiency, there's a lot of time wasting. It's a lot of, um, and, and, you know, again, everybody's got their own style. So one has to figure out what works for them. Um, uh, but if what you care about is making a contribution, then I say make the contribution and don't do the other things that don't make a contribution. You know, one of the, things, one of the ways in which I'm often asked with the junior scholars about this in terms of things like, for example, you know, institutional citizenship. I'm often asked about that. So let me just address it, like, you know, just to be candid with uh, you and with, uh, you know, anybody listening, I suppose. Um, um, to which my answer to that is, you, you should be a good citizen. You should be a good citizen of the community that you're in. But being a good citizen, you can be a good citizen in a very contained way. Like you can be a good citizen, figure out when you need to show up, show up when you need to show up, be nice to people, be friendly, do some things, and but don't do more than that like that's okay like 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 that's okay if everybody does that within a community the community is going to be fine you know mm -hmm. so but that requires the discipline to know what that is in your particular context yeah yeah i like that efficiency and discipline yeah again two years ago this would have been we should have had you on <laughs> <laughs> it's too late for us now but you <laughs> You're sacrificing this next generation. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but it is. Um, you know, you sort of can't look into the crystal ball every time, but um, these are all helpful. There's always ways to sort of regroup and refresh. It's never too late. But yeah, but these are all really helpful. Really helpful tips. Yeah. Yeah, and and speaking of, we you know think about discipline and efficiency. We know we've ask you a lot of different questions and we really appreciate the time that you've given us today and all the advice that you share with us and, and the listeners um, and learning a little bit more about you and what makes you tick. Um, so again, thank you again for uh, sharing with us today. I'm so appreciative of our listeners um, and I want to thank you all for listening today. And Hopefully this is helpful and, and people will think about their space in a, in a disciplinary world um, and pursuing population health research. So thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thanks.